Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. of our series called Connecting Heaven and Earth. If you have not been here, please go. You can go watch online. I think you can go get free CDs in the back. And so you can download the podcast, whatever it takes. I would say catch up on this series. This series has been so good. This is part three though. And, and we, we opened with this idea that we all pray. Can I get an amen? Like we all, we, all, we all pray. There's some of you in here, you don't even know if you believe in God, but you pray just in case. You know, like if it gets bad enough, you're like, just in case God's real, I'm going to pray. And so some of us are in that category. Others of us pray diligently and devotionally. Others of us pray uh, when we go to bed at night, when we wake up in the morning. Some people pray while we drive. We said, keep your eyes open. Uh, some, some of us just pray randomly. Some of us pray when we're purely just desperate. And, and it, but here's what, here's what we definitely know, is that you want God to answer your prayers. If, if you didn't, you wouldn't even utter the prayer. And so this is a big deal. And so I just started off on this journey to say, God, like I want to pray some of the prayers that some of the great men and women of the Bible prayed. Because God, if you answered their prayers, maybe there's some insight there. Maybe there's something that I need to glean and reflect. And if you would answer their prayers, maybe, just maybe, you'd answer my prayer. Because I want my prayers to get answered. I want to connect heaven and earth. And so on week one, we actually looked at something that we called the ambitious prayer. Because here's what we know. I know that you want to be blessed. Every one of you in here, you want the favor of God on your life and you want to be blessed. Can I get amen? You just, you're like, yep, no doubt about it. I want to be blessed. I want God's favor and protection over my life. I'm not saying that I need to, to live in a mansion and drive a Mercedes, but I just know I want God's favor and blessing over my life, whatever that means. And that's really what we looked at on week two. Not only that, but in week, in, I mean, that was week one, but in week two, we talked about this. Not only do you want to be blessed, but you have some friends, You have some family members and you have some loved ones that you care deeply about. And they're struggling or they're hurting or they're away from God. And what do you pray when you want to pray for somebody else? And we looked at this incredible, like, really audacious prayer where Moses argues with God. Like, in his prayer, he's arguing. It's it's crazy. Like, walk softly when you pray that prayer. Go get the CD. Listen to it twice before you start praying it, maybe. But I'm telling you some compelling stuff when he said, I want to pray for some other people whose life is on the line. Because this is what I know about you. You want to be blessed. You have people that you, you love and care about. Here's what else I know about you. You're going to blow it one day. What? Yeah, this isn't encouraging. This isn't the Joel Osteen hour right now. Okay. The, the, you're you're going to have them. Here's how I know that. It's because we all do it. Because I do it. You do it. Every great man or woman in the Bible, they did it. There was one perfect person that walked this world. His name was Jesus, and you're not him. And so I just know you're going to blow it. Like, you're talking about some of the great, like Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, was a premeditated murderer before he wrote that. Like, okay. We need to think about, like, there's some incredible, like Peter gave the first gospel presentation of the New Testament. Just weeks earlier, he had denied Jesus that he even knew him or had anything to do with him. And so, like, you're going to have moments where you just blow it. You ever, you don't raise your hand, but you ever had a moment where you just like, what was I thinking? You ever had a moment you were like, I was so angry. Because how many of you know, like, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you get at the peak height of your anger, you lose brain function. That's why you were like, I got so angry and I couldn't even believe that I said that. I couldn't believe that I did that. Do you know why? Because you were stupid in that moment. (laughs) Clinically, 
measurably dumber than you normally are right now. You know, right now you're wise. You're at church. You're really on your best behavior. You've been dressed up a little bit. Some of you shave. You're doing great today. But when you're at the peak of your anger, oh, you're going to have these moments where you just, you, you know what? I, I, know, I know this is to be true. Because our, our prefrontal cortex doesn't really fully develop until we get into our kind of almost mid-20s. When you look back at your 20-year-old self, did you blow it? And when you were a teenager, you blew it, but you thought you were right. So either way, you, like, you've had these moments. I saw a dad look at the dog. Uh, this is not elbow hour. We've all blown it, right? Even, even the dad's blown it, mom's blown it, kids are all blown it. We've all blown it. And, and here's, what, here's what I know, that when I blow it, when I totally make the foolish, wrong, awful decision, say the bad thing, the wrong thing at the wrong time, and I just totally mess it up, I'm going to need to go pray a prayer. And I want to know what that prayer really looks like. Now, now, here's the beauty of it, is that there is a prayer in the Bible that I think so embodies what we're talking about today, and it was written by a guy named David. So like David is the guy. Now, just so you know, again, most of the great men and women of the Bible they have major blunder stories, and David has his own. And so if you don't know the story of David, David is, is this guy that when he's just a teenager, he is hand-selected by God. Now, that's a big deal. If you're taking note, I want you to dial that in. He was hand-selected by God. A prophet picked him out of a crowd of more qualified older brothers and said, that's the guy. As a matter of fact, he proclaimed, this guy has God's heart. Now, look. People have said nice things about me at times. People have said flattering things about me at times. I don't even think most of those are true. No one has ever once said, Todd, you have God's heart. Nobody's ever said that about me. But they said that about this guy. This guy was the golden child, hand-selected. And he was awesome because even after he was selected, I mean, this guy goes through incredible turmoil and challenge. His, his faith is completely tested. I mean, what God said did not come to pass right away. But after years and years of, of like even levels of like torment, eventually he's made the king of Israel. And he finally gets to like step into like the role that God hand-selected him for. And it's, it's awesome. But again, here's what we all know. At some point, no matter how great we are, no matter how golden we are, no matter how chosen we are, we're going to make a mistake. Next is, is we, we, we find a woman. This is, this, is, this is where it starts. We find a woman. Now, the story goes like this. The Bible says something interesting. It says that when the kings went out to do war, David stayed home. Which meant when he should have been out doing what kings should be doing... He was staying at home. He had too much time on his hands and he got bored and he got restless. And the Bible says that he's just kind of like hanging out, walking around the rooftop of the palace. Now, here's the deal. There's a woman within eyeshot who knew what she was doing because nobody bathes naked where other people can see them without them knowing other people can see them. Does that make sense? So people sometimes get the, the notion that in this story that Bathsheba is the innocent victim. She's not. She's desperate housewife. Because the husband is gone. The husband is off busy playing with the boys and she's home restless. So literally the story says that she decides that she's going to bathe. I don't know how many nights or days it took of her. I'm like, people were like, you bathe a lot. You know, so she was hanging out bathing on top of her roof in eyeshot of the palace and David sees her. You know what happens next. And so David says, hey, you should go get that girl. 
and they have an affair. Well, he, when he's done, just dismisses her because he's the king and that's just what he just does. He just dismisses her, but then it finds out she's pregnant, which makes this thing more scandalous than it already was. Now, here's what you need to know. She had a husband. His name was Uriah. And he was one of David's soldiers. He was gone. He was out running around doing the battle thing and the war thing and with the troops and with the men and all that. And, and, and so David gets this brilliant idea. And his idea is simply this. She's pregnant. I'll just invite him to come back home. And since he comes back home, he'll hook up with his wife. And then that'll just be his kid. And that's just, we'll just sweep this thing right under the rug. No one will ever know about it. Well, here's the deal. Uriah knows what's going on. We don't know exactly know how he found out or how he figured it out, but Uriah figures out what's been going on. And so he makes this kind of, uh, this move against the king. He can't publicly say anything because that's wrong to speak against the king. But what he does is, is, is when David says, hey, you're home, you should go see your wife, go check in on your wife. He goes, no, I won't do it. I, how could I leave my men on the battlefield and go be with my wife? I'm just going to sleep here on the palace doorsteps. And he says, I'm not going to do it. And so he puts David on full blast. Like, I know what you did, and I'm not going to cover up your sin, and you're going to take responsibility. And so this is how David takes responsibility for his actions. He calls up his general. He says, hey, I'm sending Uriah back to you, but I want you to put him on the front line. And in the heat of the battle, when things get crazy, pull some men back and see what happens. And he literally has a conspiracy where he plots the murder or the death of Uriah. And then he thinks, well, well, now he's gone. I'll just make Bathsheba one of my wives, and that will cover this thing up. And now we'll just sweep it under the rug. Are you seeing, like, this is crazy. What he has done, the conspiracy of it all. And Uriah wasn't the only one that died. I cannot imagine, like, some of the men that were right there next to him. I mean, so, like, David is a part of this massive conspiracy now. And it appears as though he has gotten away with it until his buddy Nathan shows up. So when Nathan shows up, Nathan is the local prophet. He is the prophet to the king. And God speaks to Nathan and exposes basically all that David had done, exposes it to Nathan. So Nathan goes to him, and this is a great, this is a great way to do it. He goes to the king and he says, hey, I got a story for you. Can I just tell you a story? He goes, tell me the story. He goes, there's this guy who wants to buy the sheep from a man. But the man says, no, because this sheep is my prized possession. This is my sheep. I've, I, I was there when it was born, and I raised it like it was my own. This is not just an animal. This is like a pet. And so anyway, the, the guy is so angry, and he wants he just steals the pet and takes the pet and takes the sheep. And this is just this little parable that Nathan's, Nathan's telling. He doesn't tell David that it's a parable. He just starts playing out this story. Well, David, if you don't know his background, but he was a shepherd. And so he knows what it's like to love the little fuzzy quadruped that's so cute. And David is so furious that he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is the man that took that sheep from the one guy that all he had was that one? Who, who was it? And Nathan said, you're the man. This is not a story about a man and a sheep. This is a story about you, King David, because you took that man's wife when you shouldn't have. And David's like, oh, because here's something you need to know. Your sin eventually catches up with you one way or another. Sin has 
consequences. This is why God doesn't want you to sin. It's not like God has a magical rule book in heaven. It's like, oh, you did good. You did bad. You're in, you're out. That's not. God is a loving father that sees cause and effect, that sees sowing and reaping, that sees how that if you do these things, your life will turn out this way. And so sin has negative built-in consequences. And so God being a loving father steps back and says, hey, I don't want you to sin. Not because of my great rule book that I'm judging the world on, but because I'm a loving father. And I just know that if you keep doing these things, you're going to end up with hurt, pain, and collateral damage. And so don't sin. And this is what happens. Your sin catches up with you. Consequences happen in this life and in the life to come. And so David literally has to come to terms with the fact that I have sinned. I have so wronged this entire situation. I'm a part of an adulterous affair, a murderous conspiracy. I've dishonored God as the king of Israel. And what do you say in that moment? Because you've blown it. You probably, at least I hope not, have not blown it to that degree. That's a pretty big, that's a big deal. Psalms 51 is his prayer. So the beauty is this, is that David prays a prayer of repentance. We'll call it the contrite prayer. He prays this prayer of repentance and he writes it all down so that for thousands and thousands of generations to come, we can read it and reflect and say, you know what? What do you say and what do I say when I have completely blown it? Because this is what you're going to see. In this prayer, you're going to see like a few different things. As I looked at the prayer and I analyzed the prayer, there's four components. Number one is this, is there's, a, there's some pleading going on here. Like begging, groveling, just asking for mercy. This is where like as a kid, when you go to your parent and you know that you're busted, and you're like, please have mercy on me. That's what he does here. Just pure, flat out asking, begging, and pleading. And that's good. That's a good thing to do. Because when you plead, it means I have no pride in me. It, when I plead, it means I'm not trying to argue. Because this is, I don't know, what do you do when you get caught? What do you do when you know? Because I know my human nature, which comes from Adam in the Garden of Eden. If you remember Adam's first sin, God came to him and he just asked the question, what did you do? And he didn't say, hey, I took the, the, the fruit of the tree that you told me. And I, he didn't confess. He didn't say he did it. You know what he said? He says, well, technically the woman that you gave me she tricked me. And that's my human nature. Because when I sin, I like to blame other people. Right? They made me do it. They tricked me. Well, they made me mad. If you hadn't have made me mad, then I wouldn't have. Right? That's, what, that's what, not you, other people, your neighbors. This what, sometimes you just have excuses. Right? Sometimes you justify. So like, like the other day, I have this thing in my house where um, I drink a lot of lemonade. Does anybody like some lemonade? I, I drink, and I have pink lemonade, and, and my kids keep taking my lemonade. And so I've set forth a rule, a law, if you will, that's like, y'all drink whatever you want, but don't touch my lemonade, because it's what I drink. And I even cut it with water. Like, it's like half water, half lemonade, because, you know, I've got to hydrate. You need the water, right? It's all healthy. And so, and, and so like, I come in. It's hot. I'm sweating. I don't know what was going on, but I'm hot, and all I want is some lemonade. And I come in, and the bottle of lemonade is empty, sitting on the counter. And I look over, and I see my two little beautiful daughters with sippy cups, (laughs) with pink lemonade. That's right, it's pink. I roll like that. Don't judge nobody. And I look at Caitlin, and she's six. Or seven. And I'm like, Caitlin. She's going to be seven soon. I said, Caitlin, 
did you drink my lemonade? And immediately, without hesitation, her mom is like three feet from school. She gave it to me. And that's what we do. But like, don't be mad at me. She did it. She gave That's what Adam would have. She gave it to me. That's what you and I do. Like, I remember, I remember this one. Sometimes we just lie. Sometimes we rationalize. Like this one time, I'm in Michigan, um, and, and I, I, I used to have a heavy foot. I don't speed anymore. I, haven't, I don't think I got a speeding ticket since I live in California. So I got like 14 years of no speeding tickets. I have other tickets, not speeding tickets. <laughs> and I haven't even had one of those in years either. But you need, stay with me here. Stay with the point. Uh, the, the point is I was speeding. And, and what happened was it was like 1 o'clock at night. I was dropping somebody off. I was headed home. And then like, you ever have like the car get right in front of you and go really, really, really slow? And then, like, you're like, come on, come on, come on. Oh, my gosh, get out of the way, get out of the way. Come on, go, go. All right, move it, lady. And then what's your instinct as soon as they turn? What's your instinct? Gun it, yeah. Like, you got to make up for lost time. So I just, I gun it, and I'm like, and, and it, you know. Some of you police officers here today, thank you for serving and protecting because you served me on that day. You served, you served a ticket to me. And, and what's crazy is this, is I was doing like 50 and a 35. But it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's out. And, and, but where he pulled me over is like I'm looking at the 45 mile an hour speed thing. Now, I'm 19, and so I'm very smart and very wise. I have a lot of legal experience now at, at the age of 19. And so I'm like, you know what? I don't want to pay this stupid ticket. This is a dumb ticket. I don't want to pay this thing. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to court, and then maybe the cop just won't show up because that's what they would tell you. Just, just, sometimes they don't show up, and then you don't have to pay. And so I was like, well, maybe he won't show up. And then if he does, I'm going to tell that judge that it was 1 o'clock in the morning. And technically, no one was on the street. And technically, it wasn't that big of a deal. And technically, technically, there was a 45. I was looking. I wasn't in the zone yet, but I mean, I could see the zone that would have allowed me to go, you know, 50 miles an hour. That just been a little bit over. And, and so, man, I went to court. And the cop showed up. And, and then the, the, I remember the judge asked me, he goes, well, you know, you're here. Why are you, you know, are you here? What do you, what do you plead or whatever? And I'm like, well, sir, I just like to say that. And I started to, like, explain to this judge, like, I began to justify why I was right, and I didn't deserve that ticket. And then he very lovingly said, son, were you doing 50 miles an hour? I said, yes, sir. He goes, pay your ticket and go. (laughs) But you don't understand. And that's how we get sometimes with our own sin and our own mistakes. There's excuse, there's blame, there's rationalizing. I have reasons for my dysfunction. I have reasons for my weirdness. I have reason for my foolish mistake. And this is what we do. Not David. He begins with begging and pleading. Next he moves to confessing. This is huge. He just literally confesses his own sin. Thirdly, the next thing he does is, and we all like to do this, make some promises. Because if you've really blown it, you got to make some promises, right? God, I promise, if you forgive me this time, I will never. I will be at church every week. How long did that last? Mm, you buster. Anyway, I'm just messing with you. Pro- but promises, promises are a part of it. And then lastly, there's some insight. Like he makes some profound insight into like, wow, I, I kind of picked up on some things about God that I never knew before. And this is Psalms 51. There's some pleading. Some begging, some confessing, some promises, and some insight. And so when you pray your prayer, I don't want you to excuse. I don't want you to justify. I don't want you to blame. I want you to do some pleading. 
I want you to do some confessing. I don't care if you make some promises or not. We'll talk about that. But like, maybe you should make some promises. And, and, and I want you to have some insight into who God really is. Let's begin reading today. We're going to take a look at a good portion of Psalms 51. The Bible says this in verse 1. David begins with this just kind of, again, begging, pleading right out of the gate. Verse 1 says this, have mercy on me, O God. Like that's how you begin a great prayer of repentance. You don't start with any of the other things we talked about. You just start with, oh dear God, I have blown it. Please have mercy on me. Everybody say mercy. Mercy. Know the difference between, like many times we play for grace And we pray for mercy. And there's a unique difference between the two of them. Grace, grace is when I get what I don't deserve. Like just blessing, unmerited favor, a gift of grace. He gave it to me. I didn't deserve it. He just gave it to me. Mercy is the opposite. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. And he's saying, I deserve it. He he says this boldly and plainly in a minute. I do deserve it. I deserve every bit of the consequences that life is going to deal me, that sin is going to deal me, that your judgment's going to deal me. I deserve it all. But I'm asking that if you would just have mercy and don't give me what I do deserve. And he says this. This is so beautiful. He goes, and give me that mercy according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion blot out my transgression. Notice that he doesn't, he doesn't say forgive me and have mercy because remember that time, remember that time where you sent the prophet and you chose me above everybody else? Remember that one time where I was really, really good? Remember that one time I wrote you that worship song that was really awesome and everybody sang it for thousands of years? Do you remember that one time when I rebuilt the temple and I did the thing and the worship and the Do you remember that one time I made all those sacrifices? Remember me? I deserve a break. I've earned it. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say have mercy because I deserve it. Have mercy because of all the good things that I did in my past. He says have mercy because you're good. Because here's the difference between us and God. This is the difference. We fail. God has unfailing love. And that's the difference between us. And David is very, very aware of the fact that God, I need you to forgive me because you're good. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. I want you to know like cleansing has always been a big deal really in all religions. And what studies have gone on to show now is this, is that, that, that the cleansing actually has psychological effects on us. As a matter of fact, there was a study done recently, and they took this study, and they had the, like, all these people write down a moment. They lied to them. This is how studies are always done. So if anybody says, we want you to do a study, they're lying to you. They're trying to figure out something else, but they need to trick you into believing that what you're doing is real. So he said, we need you to write down a story of how you were really, really hurtful to someone that you loved, which would produce what? The reminder of your own guilt. And then afterwards, they posed this opportunity where they could help somebody in need. But they allowed some of them to go wash their hands first. And others just to like sit there and wait and stew in their own guilt. And what they found was this significantly higher ratio of people. The people that washed their hands didn't feel guilty anymore. And actually because of that, didn't go and be helpful to the person in need. But the people that didn't wash their hands, their guilt stayed with them longer. And when they were given the opportunity to help somebody in need, like a huge percentage of them were like, yeah, yeah, I'll help. I'll help. Why? Because they're trying to pay off, they're paying off their guilt. So like, just know this, like David is aware of the fact that he's got guilt and he's got shame and he needs that off of his life. And here's the deal. I want you to do good in life, not because you owe, but because God has been so good to you. 
So I don't want you to think, oh, I wash my hands. I don't have to do good to anybody. No, no, no. I want you to go exceedingly above and beyond anybody else in doing good because of how good God has been to you. But you're not good because of guilt. That has short-term effects on you. I'll prove it to you. Anytime that you ever got guilty, got in trouble, got shamed, and you decided, you know what? Mom gave me a guilt trip, so I'm going to do better. How long did that last? It doesn't last. Guilt is a short-term motivator. But the point is this, is that cleansing and washing is something that even psychologically affects us to say guilt is gone from my life. Let's, Let's keep reading here. He says this, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from all my sin. Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was the plant or the branch or the tree that the priest would use to cleanse a house. That weird word means anything to you. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, he's just pleading, begging, asking, please have mercy. Please wash me. Please cleanse me. Please give me a new heart. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I I love what he says. He's like, don't take away the most important thing I need in life, which is you. Like the most important thing that I need in this world is you, God. Don't take you away from me. But the big idea is this, is I want you, this is what David in essence is saying, is have mercy, God, not because I am good, but because you're good. Like, isn't that amazing? We don't have to justify, blame, excuse, rationalize, plead our case, argue all the points of how good we've been or how wonderful our church attendance was. and We, we don't have to do all that. God's mercy is there not because we're good, because really we're not. God's mercy is available to us because he is good. And so I want you to start with this idea that whenever you blow it, I want you to start with this idea of I can just plead and ask for the mercy of God. Number two is this, we talked about the idea of confessing. Listen to this. Verse three says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Like he's wallowing in it. He knows it's all over him. He thinks about it. He dwells on it. You ever done that before? It just, it just messes with you and it stays with you and it even makes you feel dirty and unclean. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I don't know where he gets this line from. At first I was like, did you forget about Uriah? Did you forget about Bathsheba? Remember how you killed those men? I think you sinned against more than just God. And then I I take a second look and I'm like, okay, I think what he's saying is this, is that ultimately any sin that I have begins with the idea that I've sinned against God, first and foremost. Because the sin against you means before that I had to turn away from God. I had to turn away from his ways. I had to turn away from his wisdom. I had to turn away and disobey God because that's what ended up resulting in me, sinning against you. Look at this next line. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is the best position you can ever be in. Never be in a position where you want to argue on your behalf. It is a failing argument. What he says is what we all ought to say. You know what, God? You're right. And I don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve, I don't deserve anything. And whatever you give me, you are so right and just to give me whatever that means. This is almost like when Jesus, there's a story of Jesus watching two people go to the temple to pray. It's a really quick story in the Gospels. But Jesus is saying, I saw two people go to pray, and one of them was a sinner, and he went down on his knees, and he said, God, please just have mercy on a sinner like me. He was just pleading and confessing. 
pleading and confessing. He said, but the next guy came up and his prayer was, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner like that guy. He goes, don't ever be like that. Don't ever stand in the seat of arrogance that thinks you're above and you're better than and you're not deserving of. Know this, whatever sin and whatever judgment comes your way, you're completely deserving of that judgment. And God is, is, is right in doing so. Always stay in the seat of mercy. Listen to what he says here next. Verse five says this, surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceive me. Now, now this has two ways of looking at it. One way is to look at the doctrine of original sin, which just says we're all born sinners, which I believe because I've had children. And <laughs> your, your children all sinned. They're not nearly as good as you think they are, by the way. And they all sinned. And you didn't teach them how to sin. They all figured out how to do that on their own. I just, I believe we're all born with some type of genetical disposition to sin. But there's something else that theologians have figured out that when they look at all the genealogies of Jesse, his father, and all the different, and they're like, wait a minute, there's, there's a wife here. And there's not a wife here. And then there's some kids. Wait. And they think that David was actually himself a product of an adulterous relationship. And so many people don't think he's saying anything about original sin. He's saying, hey, look, I got here because of sin. Like, that's how I came from. But either way, like, this is the walk away. This is what you need to really focus on. Unfortunately, sin is a part of your earthly DNA. But even though it's a part of your earthly DNA, it gives you no justification to keep on sinning. This is why Jesus said, I want you to be born again. I want you to have new life within you. I want you to have a new nature and a new character about you. And so David was saying, hey, look, I, I recognize that I was born in sin and that this is where my life comes from. And so all this pleading and all this confessing leads you to this big idea. You need to get a hold of confession. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you might have an aversion to it. You might have a picture of a guy in a box and a thing, and I got my sin bucket, and I got to dump that out, and I got I to cleanse myself, and then I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to be better. I want you to think about confession as so much bigger than that, and so much greater than that, because God has invited you in to confess. As a matter of fact, think about 1 John 1, verse 7. It says this. It says, if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Think about this. Salvation is made. Like, how does salvation, people ask me, like, what is salvation? Salvation, the moment of salvation is incredibly simple. Paul said it like this. He said it's simple. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. And he speaks very specifically about how confession leads to salvation. So, like, it's, like confession is a beautiful thing. Because ultimately, confession is what breaks the cycle of sin over my life. Like, at some point, because this is what, this is the, again, when it goes back to Adam. And you look at what Adam did. Didn't take responsibility, he didn't plead, he didn't beg, he didn't ask for mercy, he didn't confess, he didn't do any of those things. He, he just jumps into the sin cycle. And this is what the sin cycle looks like. Because more than likely, you either have done this or you know somebody that has. Especially if you grew up going to church. You grew up going to church and you know the difference between right or wrong. You know that's, that's good and that's bad and that's holy and that's unholy and now I've sinned and whatever. And this is the sin cycle. Is you sinned. And you started carrying all this guilt and shame and you felt a little dirty and you felt a little unworthy. And so you know, like, I don't, I don't think I'm in a good place right now. I don't feel like I'm good enough to go to church. So what happens is, is that sin pushes me further away from God. Well, here's the problem with that. The further and further and further away I get from God, the more likely it is that I do what? Sin some more. But because I sin some more, I still don't feel any more worthy or able to go to church. And I don't feel like worshiping God. I couldn't lift my hands right now. Does God know what I've been doing? Of course he does. And so I'm going to push further away. And so, so sin creates guilt that pushes me away. But pushing away creates more sin, which creates more guilt. And at some point, you're going to have to break the cycle of sin over your life. And then the invitation is simple. Just come. 
and own it. Just come and put it on the table. Just come and confess and watch. Because this is what we're so afraid of. We're so afraid of, almost like in a court case, that if I confess, I'll be found guilty. And then I'll get all that punishment. That's not how sin works. You're already living in your own punishment. That's why you're miserable and unhappy and living with the consequence of sin. You're already living with it. Confession is not what sends punishment your way. Confession is what frees you. It breaks the cycle of sin. Now, let's keep going here. So, so then he says this in verse 13. This is where he starts making promises, which I love the human nature of this. I think it's okay. He says this, Then, after you forgive me, have mercy, cleanse me, wash me, restore me, create me a new heart. All these great things. He says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. God, I promise that if you forgive me, I'll tell the world about you. I'll, I'll go to a hut in a foreign land and eat bugs if it's necessary. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God and my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your... I'll write new psalms. I've written a bunch. I'll write new... If you forgive me this time, I'll write new psalms. Number 15, verse 15. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. God, I, I make this promise to you that as I turn and return back to you, back to your ways, as I live in your mercy, I promise... I will give you glory, and I will tell the world about your great love and your great mercy. It's just a promise worth making. But here's the point that I would make, is that your promises don't move God's forgivenesses. They just move you. I mean, do you really think, do you really think that all the pleading and all the confessing, God was like, you know, I don't know yet. I don't know that I believe it. I don't know, I don't know that I buy it. I'm still a little skeptical. And then all of a sudden you're like, and God, if you do, I'll, I'll write new psalms. I'll go be part of the praise and worship team, God. I can't even sing. I'm like American Idol, but I'll do it. I'll do it. If that'll make you happy, I'll go sing. I'll tell the world. I'll witness. I'll share my faith. I'll be on a missions trip next month. I promise. And then all of a sudden, God's going to be like, you know what? Now I believe you. Your promises are going to move God's forgiveness. They're to move you. Why? Because there's probably something that needs to change. The words coming out of your mouth probably need to become praise. And the actions coming out of your life probably need to be for others. And the promises that you make don't move God. They move you. Let's keep going here. Into the insight realm. He has these fascinating insights. This is the very end of the psalm. And we'll begin to close down here. If you're taking medicine, it's 1111. The Bible says this. It says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What he's saying is this. Let's just keep reading. He puts it all together really well. Verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is actually a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, you will not despise. What he's saying is this. Is that you can't buy God's forgiveness. You can only offer your broken heart. Because what he's saying is this, is God, I've sinned and I've blown it. And I could come and offer a thousand bulls and a thousand rams and kill a bunch of little lambs. or do, I could do all that. But if in my heart I wasn't repentant, none of it matters. That doesn't mean jack to you. So when we've sinned, we can go through all the major gestures and say, God, look what I did. Look, no, no, no. What he cares about is at the center of all that you are, your heart, that inside of there you are truly broken and contrite. And repentant. That's where everything begins. Because I'll prove it to you. Look what he says next. He says, may it please you to prosper Zion or Jerusalem. And to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then 
You will delight in the sacrifices of the what? Of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. What he's saying is this. He goes, I don't want your offerings to be some type of artificial payment down for your guilt and your debt. I want your offerings to be out of your worship, out of your gratitude for who I am and what I've done in you. Do you see the difference? He's like, God, I just want to get to a place in my relationship where I'm not trying to pay down guilt, but I'm just living in your blessing. And then, then when I come and worship, then when I come and give, and then I come and sacrifice, all that is because of my relationship with you, not because of how bad I've been. And really, this is where you see the whole dynamic in the whole psalm. The whole psalm is built on this idea that, God, what you really want is my heart. What you really want is a relationship with me. What you really want is for me just to be open and honest with you. And he says some words like, don't take away the joy of my salvation. Don't take away your presence from me. I want you to think about something. It was a sexual sin that was the starting point of this whole mess. But David never starts with that. He never even mentions that. What he mentions is is the fact that his heart was wicked and his heart was evil. And he needed God to create in him a new heart. He needed to be reminded of the joy of salvation. That he needed to sing God's praises once again. And here's the point that I would make. That all of your sin is really a byproduct of you trying to fill in something where you're not allowing your relationship with God to heal and to make whole. Because when you are in union with God, when you are right in your relationship with God, not sinning and sin, I mean, that stuff doesn't even weigh on your mind. When, put it this way, when God is your joy and satisfaction in life, for whatever reason, that seems to take care of everything else. John Piper said it like this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And what David was addressing was, is I forgot the joy of my salvation and I forgot to sing of your righteousness and I had lost my relationship with you. I got bored and lost my way and lost my purpose and lost what you were doing in me and now I'm just wandering around on a rooftop and then I get distracted and then I fall into mess because I forgot what you had done in me, what you had called me to do. I'd forgotten all of those things. And so what I want you to see is this, is that there's this, this beautiful display. It's actually, confess, it starts with pleading and then it goes to confessing. And then it goes to some promises, and then actually goes back into confessing some more. And then it goes with this beautiful insight that, God, what you really care about, above all, is my heart. Is my heart broken towards you? That's what matters to your heavenly Father. And it all begins with this idea of begging for mercy and pleading and confessing. Because remember we talked about that earlier, like we're so afraid of confessing because we feel like, well, if I confess, I'll be found guilty and then I'll get punishment. You're already living in the punishment. Guilt, guilt is gone when we confess. Freedom comes when we confess. I'll prove it to you. In, in, in the court of law, if you watch enough TV shows, how many of you guys watch like Law and Order from back in the day or Blue Bloods? You got your, your cop show? If you got your cop show, you know that like the DA is working a deal. And the DA really wants you to confess. Because here, here's the deal. You are guilty. And the best thing that you can do is confess so that they plea down your punishment. Because the the beauty of the grace and mercy of God is this. Like this is the plea deal that God offers you. Is that you confess. Jesus takes all your punishment. You go free. It's the deal that doesn't even make sense. But this is the offer of grace and mercy. Is that you don't have to pay the penalty of your own sin. If you'll just plead out. 
If you just say, I'm going to confess, I'm with my broken heart, I'm going to come and I'm going to plead and I'm going to confess. And I'll let Jesus' death on the cross take away all my sin. And because he took it all, I go free. It's the most beautiful deal in the world. It's an offer you can't refuse. And so when you blow it, and it's time for you to pray your prayer, it might look something like this. This is the prayer that will give you on the way out the door. Your prayer might look something like this. Have mercy on me, not because I deserve it, but because you are good. I have sinned and I'm in need of your forgiveness. Cleanse me, wash me, restore me. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let's pray this morning. Now, I hope you don't blow it. I hope you go out and you live in the fullness You live in the joy. You live in the satisfaction of your relationship with God. And that leads you on the most incredible path in his plan, in his purpose, in his holiness. And I hope you don't. But if you do, John says the same thing, really. If you read the the book of 1 John, the first chapter, he goes, I want you to know that you don't have to sin anymore. But if you do, I want you to know that you have an advocate with the Father. And if you'll just go and confess... He will not only forgive you, but he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So what I want you to do in the moment where you blow it and you get angry and you make that mistake, I want you to go to God. I want you to do, maybe it's just some pleading. I want you to do some confessing. Maybe there's some promises you need to make. But I want you to make it out of this wonderful insight is that God is wonderful and good That he is great in mercy and he has unfailing love towards you. We fail, but he has unfailing love. And so, Father, we pray that, God, we would be a people of prayer. That, God, we would be a people of repentance, a people of confession. That confession and repentance wouldn't be dirty words. But, God, they would be words that somehow kind of unlock the door of our own prison and allow us to go free. God, I pray that you would help us to become great at these prayers of confession and repentance, God so that we can be reunited with you, so that we can walk in the joy of your salvation, God. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Amen. Can we give the Lord a big hand clap this morning? Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.